thank you for those uh, insights. You mentioned about the importance of process over output and how a participatory modeling will create a result that is more culturally acceptable. Were any of such findings highly correlated to your what to your work? Do you find do you see those things when you were working on such topics? Right. So uh, my, you know, uh, experience with participatory modeling and that too with uh, Brahmaputra uh, has been in uh, around 2014-15. Uh, and this was basically from a, a project uh, which was funded by Asia Pacific Network for Global Change Research. Uh, in short form, it's known as APN. And uh, what we tried to do is that uh, we had some narratives of flood and erosion uh, problem uh, in uh, Lakhimpur district in Assam. And we, uh, when I say narratives, this is not just, you know, uh, 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 a narrative from one particular discipline like geomorphology or, you know, hydrology or uh, social science, but these are narratives from academic, uh, but also a different kind of narratives from the water resource department, uh, how they feel that, you know, they were doing the right thing. Uh, if, they, if you look from their point of view, it is the right thing what they were doing at that time. Uh, and then there were narratives from the community. The community that I was working with is the Mishing community uh, in the north bank of the river, in, in uh, specifically in Dhokwakhana subdivision of Lakhimpur. And then uh, we have narratives from the revenue and disaster management department. Uh, so what we tried to do is that uh, we had a qualitative models from these uh, narratives, uh, which is basically a, a kind of a diagrammatic representation of storylines. And then we opened these, uh, you know, diagrams with these different stakeholder groups. Uh, Water Resource Department was one of the stakeholders. The academics were one of the stakeholders. Then Revenue Department was another. The mission community leaders were one another uh, stakeholder group. So uh, it was a five-day, you know, workshop where they got some uh, hands-on training for such diagrams. Then they used these diagrams uh, to uh, represent their storylines. They modified the preliminary models that we gave them. Uh, some of them, you know, challenged whatever we found in the field work, which is very important. Uh, that's that's how you know you uh, push for uh, critical thinking, right? So they challenged our own findings. They they added to it. So in the end of the like two, three days, they came up with their own diagrams and they presented it. So when they presented, so when each stakeholder group presented, uh, that was one of the first times when the, you know, the revenue department got to hurt the mission perspective. Uh, at the same time, the, the mission leaders got to hear from the revenue department. Uh, same for the academics. They got to hear from uh, the missions. The missions got to hear from the hydrologist. So this, this uh, you know, interaction uh, gave to new kind of questions that why are we waiting for compensation? 
because erosion is not uh, recognized as a natural disaster. Bank erosion is not a disaster. So there is no question of money coming for, uh, you know, uh, river erosion. So uh, automatically the leaders, you know, tried to uh, partner with the NGOs in the room and started to think about what alternatives can be done. So one of the th interesting alternatives which uh, came up was uh, <clears throat> the missions have this uh, uh, culture of going from one, uh, you know, uh, sand island to the other. So this was their way of life, not now, but, you know, uh, pre-colonial times probably that this was their uh, way of life. Uh, even now, when, when there are no embankments, places where there are no embankments, this is the way that they go. Uh, this is the way how they farm and, and uh, you know, shift their settlements. Uh, but, the, but the problem is that uh, to continue on this shifting settlement and agriculture, it's all based on muscle power. So who has the, whoever has the might uh, goes and, you know, tries to capture that sand island which has come up uh, in, the, in the middle of the river. So they felt that uh, why not integrate this thing in policy? Why not mainstream this? Uh, you know, this, this is their adaptive potential, right? So we talk about mainstreaming adaptation into disaster management, right? So this was a clear you know, example of how policy can mainstream. Uh, of course, the nuts and balls of this policy has to be worked out but this is a new idea that you know uh, can such uh, you know shifting uh, behavior be mainstreamed uh, in uh, can there be new kinds of regulation can there be new kinds of uh, thinking about land tenure system so uh, and then you know uh, there was a lot of complaints from the government departments that even when uh, you know, land is given to the mission population to settle somewhere, to leave these problematic flood prone areas. They don't move uh, because the attribution to this was that they were sitting there for, uh, with the hope of getting compensation for their land loss. Uh, in that workshop, we found that that's only partially true. One of the reasons that you know they can't move, rather than the motivation to not, comes from, uh, you know that the land that is provided uh, by the government to rehabilitate to go to a, another bank, is in an area where there are less of their own tribe, uh, you know, uh, so they have to go from the north bank to the south bank, which is a quite a transition for uh, the, the the families. Moreover, uh, the land that is given is not uh, enough for a joint family. It's good enough for you know, uh, a family of four, but not good enough for a family of like eight to 10 people. And machines are still, they have a joint family system. So these were the you know, new nuances which came out in the workshop. And these are very important for policy implementation. Uh, you know, these are the reasons why, you know, policy fails, no matter how good the design is, 
we have to understand these uh, nuances in the culture if we need these policies to uh, succeed. So I think, uh, you know, uh, these, this is the power of participatory modeling. Uh, had, I, had we not done this, uh, you know, uh, together with the stakeholders, these nuances would have never come. So, uh, yeah, that, that, that's the, uh, I think that's the power, that's the demonstration of the power of this technique. Right. I mean, uh, for any policy in such interior parts of the country, a policy that's made inside a cubicle cannot definite, can definitely not work at the best optimal levels. Because Absolutely. of this culture and nuances, as you rightly mentioned. I mean, Absolutely. drafting a policy, keeping in mind my family and your family, which we probably live in cities at a size of four, would definitely not work for people with 10, 12 people. Absolutely. And that goes true for even modeling, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, you can have the best model in your desktop uh, sitting thousands of kilometers away from the problem. But that doesn't mean, uh, you know, the, the solutions that you get out of the model uh, will be acceptable, will be context specific, and hence the need uh, to uh, bring it down to participatory level. So this also means that whenever we are probably making any kind of a model of any scenario, any policy, we'll probably have to have a very ideal framework and then customize it based on the particular community, which is it is absolutely absolutely and, and and one of the entry points for this kind of technique you know is that uh, all policies in india they have consultations it's not that uh, you know they are made well the myth is that they are made in delhi and then they are you know somehow brought in uh, in a very top down manner uh, which is only partially true uh, there is always consultation uh, the thing is that you need to bring out these uh, participatory scenario building, participatory modeling techniques in these consultations. Uh, one way is that it will uh, lead to a lot of top-down and bottom-up communication. It will lead to a lot of trust building. And then it will also lead to, you know, uh, demonstration of what works and what doesn't work. And things will be more, uh, you know, uh, as you know, checkland of soft systems rights that are systemically desirable and culturally feasible. I think we have to work towards that. Right. As you mentioned, policy consultations do happen, but probably it's also a reason that people are not aware of it, that it do not participate, or maybe the elite of communities participate and the real problems do not come out. Well, uh, I, I will be bold enough to say that uh, some of the consultations happen in a very elitist way. Uh, so the, we need to be more grounded in the context when we talk about, you know, whether such techniques like participatory modeling. Well, when you utter these words like modeling, participatory techniques, there is a sort of elitism already into it. But hey, come on, when you go with a flip chart with local people and you, you know, uh, tell them how to draw diagrams, that's not that complicated. Uh, so you need to uh, bring it down to community level, whatever, whatever your jargons you are using. Uh, and, and that's the art of facilitation and, uh, you know, participatory modeling techniques uh, teach you the art of facilitation. The researcher is the facilitator here. Um, so, 
uh, you asked me about uh, consulting. Yeah, so we have to, you know, try to frame things in a very non-elitist way. You know, we have to not only call our friends when we are holding a consultation. Uh, that generally happens. Uh, I have worked in policy think tanks and I've been part of consultation. So I, I, I know the drill. So uh, I think uh, as a researcher, you need some passion, you need some empathy to the context. Those are very important uh, when you are, uh, you know, uh, trying to do something participatory. Right. So we'll one is to drop those jargons that come with the traditional and conventional ways of working and try yes, to. Yes, exactly. And, 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 and that's being a transdisciplinary researcher, how you keep your jargons to your textbook and your classrooms and how you demystify them and bring it uh, to a consultative uh, you know, policy process. Perhaps we'll have to look at it like uh, working with a five-year-old kid. Absolutely, yeah. But, but hey, the, the, I mean, there can be elitism in that too. I mean, you may be calling a, 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 you know, a riparian tribe person a five-year-old, which they are not. They are highly, uh, you know, they're very knowledgeable about their context. Right. Uh, and and and, and uh, they will tell you whether your you know intervention will work out or not. Uh, it can work out in your model in your desktop, but they will tell you that it may not work out in their context in their uh, you know uh, river cross section. So you need to have that empathy as a facilitator. Right, right. So anything that comes out of a discussion can again be cross checked and verified on the ground with those people. Of course, and you know the researcher needs to do a field work before uh, you know getting on uh, with a such a consultation process in an ac you know boardroom i think it's very important that the researcher does a field work has a, a hang of the problem uh, talks to all uh, you know uh, stratas of population of the population and then uh, gets to know what are the different uh, you know narratives floating around because i mean i am again using a jargon that these are wicked problems which means that there is just plurality of the cause and effect relations. Uh, there is not just, uh, you know, uh, one, uh, you know, uh, cause and effect set of cause and effect relations. There are plenty of there. It's like a puzzle. Uh, and everybody has bits and parts of the puzzle and we don't know how it fits together. So we need a technique to bring these pieces together. So we, so that we can see uh, more of this uh, complex reality. Right. So we'll jump on to the next question regarding systems thinking that we discussed during the dialogue. So why do you feel and why do you state that systems thinking approach is very critical in disaster management? And how do we perform systems thinking in disaster management? Right, right. That's an interesting question. Um, systems thinking is basically uh, in the in the heart of it, what it is is uh, it's not about you know linear thinking. It's not about that things happen from in a straight line. Things happen uh, in, in a in a circle, and you have to identify uh, you know so that you don't go around in circles. Uh, so it's about uh, identifying non-linearity. It's about identifying uh, feedback relations. So A affects B, but B uh, over a time may have the ability to again influence A. So you are thinking about a circle already. So that's a feedback loop. So many of our uh, you know, policies uh, you know, go wrong 
or uh, you know uh, give out unanticipated consequences because we don't think uh, you know in circles. So a systems thinking is about unraveling these uh, uh, circular cause and effect structures. Uh, and then from systems thinking, where we can go towards is system dynamics, which is basically a, a mathematical uh, methodology uh, where you quantify the relationships that you made in your diagram. And then you can go towards simulations so these simulations are very important again, not only for uh, you know uh, for a modeler in a, with a desktop, but also in participatory modeling because people can uh, you know decide uh, and then look at the uh, uh, their the consequences of these decisions, the impact of these decisions in the model through simulations. So it's very important that, that uh, you bring together uh, a group of people who are experiencing managing or studying the problem. Uh, you try to look at the circular cause and effect relations. And then uh, you try to quantify. This quantification can be uh, you know, out of that participation. You can do it in your own uh, you know, space. But it's so important to bring out the results of this uh, simulations back to the people so that they can see that whatever they decided together in the consultation, uh, how it will impact the problem and what kind of consequences it can have. So, so that's the, again, a power of, uh, you know, systems thinking as well as system dynamics. And, and it's very important for, you know, uh, situations where there is a lot of uncertainty. Uh, most of this uncertainty come uh, because of, we don't uh, have, uh, you know, data. Some of the data doesn't exist. Some of the data uh, exist, but we don't have access to. But that doesn't mean that we cannot hypothesize. We can always hypothesize. And, uh, you know, uh, we have experts, we can use expert judgment for data. Uh, we have uh, community members who can bring their experience for data. And all, uh, you know, uh, these are acceptable sources of data for a model. Remember that model is a model, it's not a reality. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's the best guess one can have. So, and, and that's why you need scenarios, not just one optimal solution, but uh, different types of scenarios. And then you can decide for a robust solution, which can work out in different scenarios or you can yourself, uh, you know, uh, try to see that how flexible your strategies can be so that it can work out in different scenarios. So either you work for robustness, so one solution good for different, so, uh, you know, scenarios or flexibility in your strategies itself that how you can be flexible given these different scenarios. Right. So, so that's that's the power of this uh, technique. Right, but uh, there's a question on economic side as well. If we are right. having a very flexible policy or flexible framework, the cost increase way beyond what the government or the local bodies can afford. Uh, given India as a very, when the tax base of India is very absolutely low, if we talk it from a GDP compared to GDP perspective. Now, 
in such a scenario, is it even feasible economically to have such kind of solutions implemented for every subdivision, which will have about 100 villages or 40, 40 to 50 villages in certain small subdivisions? And each of the subdivisions should have a different type of reverse cross sections. So how feasible is it economically? That's a good question. Uh, you know, there are ways to integrate cost benefit analysis uh, into these models. So you can work out the strategies first uh, that which are, you know, uh, desirable uh, in the model and uh, which are also feasible uh, for the context. And then uh, you can work out uh, the cost benefit of these strategies. Uh, you have to have a set of criteria for cost. Cost doesn't mean only money. It can also mean, uh, you know, uh, what it can uh, have consequences for the environment, for the, your next generation. Uh, so all those criteria setting can be done. And then you can, uh, you know, pass these strategies through that cost benefit analysis. So uh, this is possible in the modeling. And you can be transparent about that. You can show that, oh, well, uh, let's say the, uh, you know, the community felt that this particular strategy was really feasible for them. And in the model also, it, it shows that it has a, a, you know, great impact, positive impact. But when it passes through the cost benefit, you see that it's too expensive. Uh, so then you go back to your drawing board. So, uh, you know, you, this is an iterative process you can have and along with the people. Okay. It's good to have the economic side as well. Right. But, but then, uh, you, you know, your question can be also dealt more deeply that uh, the whole process is very costly. <laughs> you know, uh, the consultation, which happens in half an hour or one hour in, in, in generally uh, in, in today's policy making, we are talking about a... <laughs> A process which may take you know months or uh, at least weeks uh, so there is cost to that as well so uh, that's a conscious decision uh, one have to you know uh, make whether to do a half an hour consultation and just uh, you know put tick marks in the pre-decided checklist or you want to invest some money uh, to a more con you know of to for a more participatory modeling process and have a solution which is desirable, feasible, and also uh, makes sense in cost. We'll definitely be putting this point onto our policy brief once we have it prepared after a close of the dialogue. Sounds good. You know, um, another entry point, Siddharth, uh, for these, uh, I mean, this is very fresh in my mind because um, I'm, I'm trying to, uh, you know, edit a book on, on pedagogies for public policy uh, education. Uh, to my mind, it also uh, comes that uh, one of the other entry points uh, for such modeling techniques uh, beyond, you know, policy consultation is also used as pedagogies for capacity building programs that are ongoing. So you would be aware that uh, there are many capacity building programs for uh, from uh, the National uh, Disaster Management Authority, right? NDMA, and which is, has a, a state part, which is ASDMA, Assam State Disaster Management. And uh, they have a lot of uh, capacity building programs going on. Uh, I'm aware of it and I've been part of these, uh, some of these. Uh, but the problem is that 
there is no pedag nobody works on the pedagogy of these uh, uh, capacity building programs. You know, an instructor comes with a lot of rich experience and gives a presentation and this, that's it. Uh, so it's like a sage on a stage kind of thing. Uh, but the world has, you know, passed away from this uh, sage on a stage kind of, uh, you know, training programs. Uh, we have to work on these pedagogies. I think one of the ways, uh, one of the entry points for such participatory modeling is also these capacity building programs. So uh, you might find that also interesting as a recommendation. Right, uh, thank you for that. I am making a note of it. Great. Uh, jumping on to the last question on modeling exercises. So let's say if the Global Shippers Hub today with a particular community wants to perform a modeling exercise, how can we initiate that in the context of any community in Assam? Or if right. any other organization wants to do, how should they proceed? Right, right. Um, you know, when we did uh, in 2014, uh, which, which stretched somewhat to 2015 as well, um, we did in Guwahati and uh, we uh, invited uh, people with whom we had done our field work. Um, but later, you know, people, first of all, people, people found it very useful, not only uh, the community uh, leaders, but also people from the revenue and disaster management, particularly people from the subdivision offices. So what they felt, and, and I, I, I find it a very useful recommendation. So they told us that it was very useful uh, we never thought that such insights could come from a, you know, a consultation meeting. But it would be more meaningful if you could come down to, you know, let's say Dhokuakhana. Uh, we'll book a room for you in the community hall center, uh, in the circle office. Uh, you have it with us in the circle office. Uh, you, you, will, you will have more participation. More participation doesn't mean that it will be more meaningful, uh, but you know uh, people will have uh, more ownership of the process. Uh, it will make them feel that it is more grounded, and we can have some strategies which is not only in the state level but also some very grounded level strategies which even the SDO office can have the jurisdiction to implement. So I found that very meaningful. I think that it's very important to make such techniques accessible uh, to you know uh, to people who are managing and also facing the problem. And and uh, the techniques I'm talking about are not you know uh, that you have to carry huge you know uh, screens and stuff. Well, there are techniques where you need huge screens, uh, but uh, the techniques. But there are certain techniques which are simple diagrams, also use of uh, some softwares which you can carry in your smartphones or your laptop. And uh, you can do it uh, with the people in their neighborhood. I think that is very important. Instead of uh, calling people out to a national capital or uh, a, you know, a state capital, uh, where you lose some of the, you know, the essence of uh, the local networks, which is so important. So, right. so uh, yeah, that, 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 that's one of the things I learned 
from this uh, my own participatory modeling exercise so the flow has to be reversed it has to not happen at the state register but it has to happen on the village level where the networks actually are right for for so, me it was a problem we were handling for dhokwakhana subdivision so the networks uh, which matter are there so right. it's very important that because you know during these exercises uh, more than the formal meetings the informal discussions also matter a lot so you have to have a eye and a ear for those informal uh, you know discussions and facilitate to bring them out from the informal to the formal you lo you lose some information but you also uh, have some meaningful learning in that yeah it's good to know that accessibility improving accessibility and democratization of and access to the the knowledge would be beneficial for such communities and such initiatives absolutely we as a hub will definitely strive for that and Great. I, i thank you for that sharing all these insights with us so that we can work more on this particular project thank you glad to be in conversation with you